0: Hey! Chapter 3 in an introduction to genetic engineering. Today we're going to try to learn how to outline the requirements for working with nucleic acids, illustrate the range of techniques for isolation, handling, and processing of nucleic acids, and describe the principles of nucleic acid hybridization, gel electrophoresis, and DNA sequencing. So this is going to be a heavily lab-based and method-based chapter. Before examining some of the specific techniques used in gene manipulation, it's useful to consider the basic methods required for handling, quantifying, and analyzing nucleic acid molecules. It's often difficult to make the link between theoretical and practical aspects of the subject, and an appreciation for the methods used in routine work with nucleic acids may be of help when the more detailed techniques of gene cloning and analysis are described. One of the striking aspects of gene manipulation technology is that many of the procedures can be carried out with fairly basic laboratory setup. Although applications such as large-scale DNA sequencing and production-scale biotechnology require major facilities and investment, it's still possible to do high-quality work within a normal research laboratory. The requirements can be summarized under three headings. General laboratory facility, cell culture and containment, processing and analyses. General facilities include aspects of layout and furnishings for the lab, provision of essential services such as water, including distilled and or deionized water sources, electrical power, gas, compressed air, vacuum lines, drainage, and so forth. Um, For the purposes of this, we'll be using the whole building design guide associated laboratory specifications because they're easy. Most of the normal services would be provided as part of any laboratory establishment and present no particular difficulty and expense beyond the norm. Cell culture and containment facilities are essential for growing the cell lines and organisms required for the research, with the precise requirements depending on the type of work being carried out. Most labs will require facilities for growing bacterial cells with the need for equipment such as autoclaves, incubators, static and rotary, centrifuges, and protective cabinets in which manipulation can be performed. Mammalian cell culture requires slightly more sophisticated facilities, and plant or algal culture usually requires integration of lighting into the culture cabinets. And that's because of the photophosphorylation that we just discussed from plant physiology. In many cases, some form of physical containment is required to prevent the escape of organisms during manipulation. Isn't that fun? I love organics, man. The overall level of containment required depends on the type of host and vector being used, with the combination providing usually a level of biological containment in that the host is usually disabled and does not survive beyond the laboratory. Which is kind of sad. For those of you into D&D, you know, they introduced that new module that was the simian. Like, vaguely vaguely sinister genetic engineers, and I think this is why they're sinister. And not even vaguely, I mean, they're genuinely kind of scary. And I think this is probably why, if you're a scientist uh, disabling your host and ensuring that it cannot survive beyond the laboratory, that's some evil shit right there. The overall containment requirements will usually be specified by national bodies that regulate gene manipulation, and these may apply to bacterial and mammalian cell culture facilities. Thus, a simple cloning experiment with E. coli may require only normal microbiological procedures, whereas an experiment to clone human genes using viral vectors in mammalian cell lines may require the use of more stringent safety systems. For processing and analysis of cells and cell components such as DNA, there is a bewildering choice of different types of equipment. At the most basic level, the type of automated pipette and microcentrifuge tube can be important. A researcher struggling with pipettes that don't work properly or with tubes that have caps that are very hard to open will soon get frustrated. At the other end of the scale, equipment such as ultracentrifuges and automated DNA sequences may represent a major investment for the lab and need to be chosen carefully. Much of the other equipment is relatively small and low cost, with researchers perhaps having a particular
1: brand preference. In addition. I'm sorry. In addition to what might be termed infrastructure and equipment,
0: the running costs of a laboratory need to be taken into account, as this is likely to be a major part of the expenditure in any given year after startup. Funding for research is a major issue for anyone embarking on a career in science, and the ability to attract significant research funds is a major part
1: of the whole process of science. And one of the most frustrating, I think. Yeah, funding is just... So demoralizing. A
0: mid-sized research team in a university, say three academic staff, five postdoctoral research assistants, six PhD or MSc students, and four technical staff, might easily cost in the region of a million pounds a year to run when salary, overhead equipment, and consumables are considered. Thus, a significant part of a senior research scientist's time may be taken up with securing grants for various projects, often with no guarantee of available long-term funding. Another portion of time is going to be spent running asset management and return on investment um, budget studies. Because if you ask for equipment, you have to be able to back up why it's necessary and you have to be able to back up the overall costs both year over year and quarter over quarter if you're working for private industry. So in case anyone wonders why I have such an obsession with asset management and uh, supply chain. Concerns, it's because of this exact thing. If you want to do the research you have to identify the funding sources and that requires politics and uh, patience with some of the business aspects of, of what people expect from you. It can be very challenging. Isolation of DNA and RNA. Every gene manipulation experiment requires a source of nucleic acid in the form of either DNA or RNA. It is therefore important that reliable methods are available for isolating these components from the cells. There are three basic requirements. One, opening the cells in the sample to expose the nucleic acids for further processing. Two, separation of the nucleic acids from other cell components. And three, recovery of the nucleic acid in a purified form. A variety of techniques may be used, ranging from simple procedures with few steps up to more complex purifications involving several different stages. These days, most molecular biology supply companies sell kits that enable purification of nucleic acids from a range of sources. The first step in any isolation protocol is disruption of the starting material, which may be viral, bacterial, plant, or animal. The method used to open cells should be as gentle as possible, preferably utilizing enzymatic degradation of cell wall material, if present, and detergent lysis of cell membranes. If more vigorous methods of cell disruption are required, as is the case with some types of plant cell material, why? Because they have those tough cell walls. There is a danger of shearing large DNA molecules, and this can hamper the production of representative recombinant molecules during subsequent processing. Following cell disruption, most methods involve deproteinization stage. This can be achieved by one or more extractions using phenol or phenol-chloroform mixtures. On the formation of an emulsion and subsequent centrifugation to separate the phases, protein molecules partition into the phenol phase and accumulate at the interface. The nucleic acids remain mostly in the upper aqueous phase and may be precipitated from solution using isopropanol or ethanol. Some techniques do not require the use of phenolic mixtures and are safer and more pleasant to use than the phenol-based extraction media. You know we've been doing this for centuries using um, alcohol, so if you ever wonder why some of those herbal remedies require an alcohol base, it's to do this. It's to break the cell walls to release some of those organelles and key chemicals of concern into the
1: solvent. The nucleic acids remain mostly in the upper aqueous phase and may be precipitated
0: from the solution using isopropanol or ethanol. Great. If a DNA preparation is required, the enzyme ribonuclease, or RNase will be used to digest the RNA in the preparation. If mRNA is needed for a cDNA in synthesis, a pur- further purification can be performed by affinity chromatography, using oligo-DT cellulose to bind the poly-A tails of eukaryotic mRNA. This gives substantial enrichment for mRNA and enables most of the contaminating DNA, rRNA, and tRNA to be removed.
1: So we've got a little example, we've got an RNA solution. We run it through an affinity chromatography
0: using oligo-DT cellulose, which is a type of enzyme. The total RNA in solution is passed through the column in a high-salt buffer, and then the oligo-DT t- tracks bind to the poly-A tails of the mRNA, and the residual RNA is washed away with a high-salt buffer. Then the mRNA is eluted. Uh, and this can all be bought by a kit, so you don't have to worry about isolating your own oligo-DT cellulose or anything like that. You can You can get that. The technique of a gradient centrifugation is often used to prepare DNA, particularly plasmid DNA, or pDNA. In this technique, a cesium chloride CSCL solution containing the DNA preparation is spun at high speed in an ultracentrifuge. Over a long period, up to 48 hours in some cases, a density gradient is formed and the P-DNA forms a band at one position in the centrifuge tube. The band may be taken off and the CSCL removed by dialysis to give a pure preparation of pDNA. As an alternative to gradient centrifugation, size exclusion chromatography or gel filtration or similar technique may be used. And we actually saw this in the, I want to say Stewart experiment, but I don't think that was right. Um, So we saw a
1: type of size chromatography in the Life experiment, the, the very first one, right, where we identified amino acids from the plasmic soup.
0: And you can do that again, So, uh, but that's only if size is important to you, right, if we're actually looking for something that can be seen like that. Handling and quantification of nucleic acids. It is often necessary to use very small amounts of nucleic acid, typically micro, nano, or picograms, during a cloning experiment. It's obviously impossible to handle these amounts directly, so most of the measurements that are done involve the use of aqueous solutions of DNA and RNA. The concentration of a solution of nucleic acid can be determined by measuring the absorbance at 260 nanometers using a spectrophotometer. At A260 of one, this equivalent to a concentration of 50 micrograms per milliliter for double-stranded DNA or 40 micrograms per milliliter of single-stranded DNA or RNA. If the A280 is also determined, the A260 to A280 ratio indicates if there are contaminants present, such as residual phenol or protein. The A260 to A280 ratio should be around 1.8 for pure DNA and 2.0 for pure RNA preparations. In addition to spectrophotomic methods, the concentration of DNA may be estimated by monitoring the fluorescence of bound ethidium bromide. This dye binds between DNA bases, it's called intercalates, and fluoresces orange when illuminated with ultraviolet light. So we actually did this in the organic chemistry lab two years ago, Um, but we were using it for PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons.
1: So I'm not quite sure if that's the same thing. But we were using ethidium bromide for its
0: color changing properties. By comparing the fluorescence of the sample with that of a series of standards, an estimate of the concentration may be obtained. This method can detect as little as 1 to 5 nanograms of DNA and may be used when UV-absorbing contaminants make spectrophotometric measurements impossible. Having determined the concentration of solution of nucleic acid, any amount, in theory, may be dispensed by taking the appropriate volume of solution. In this way, nanogram or picogram amounts may be dispensed with reasonable accuracy. Precipitation of nucleic acids is an essential technique that's used in a variety of applications. The two most commonly used precipitants are isopropanol and ethanol, ethanol being the preferred choice for most applications. When added to a DNA solution in ratio by volume of 2 to 1 in the presence of 0.2 molar salt, ethanol causes the nucleic acids to come out of solution. How cool is that? Although it used to be thought that low temperatures were necessary, this is not an absolute requirement, and 0 degrees C appears to be adequate. After precipitation of the nucleic acid, oops... After precipitation, the nucleic acid can be recovered by centrifugation, which causes a pellet of nucleic acid material to form at the bottom of the tube. The pellet can be dried and the nucleic acid resuspended in the buffer
1: appropriate to the next stage of the experiment. Labeling of nucleic acids. A major problem encountered in many
0: cloning procedures is that of keeping track of the small amounts of nucleic acids involved. The problem is magnified at each stage of the process because losses mean that the amount of material usually diminishes after each step. One way of tracing the material is to label the nucleic acid with a marker of some sort so the material can be identified at each stage of the procedure. So, what can be used as a label? Types of label, radioactive or not. Radioactive tracers have been used extensively in biochemistry and molecular biology for a long time, and procedures are now well established. Most common isotopes used are tritium, 3H, carbon-14, 14C, sulfur-35, 35S, and phosphorus-32, 32P. Tritium and 14C are low energy emitters with 35S being a medium energy emitter and 32P being a high energy emitter emitter. Thus, 32P is more hazardous than the other isotopes, and requires particularly care and use. There are also strict statutory requirements for the storage and disposal of radioactive waste materials. Partly because of the inherent dangers of working with high-energy isotopes, the use of alternative technologies such as fluorescent dyes or enzyme-linked labels has become popular in recent years. Although these methods do offer advantages for particular applications, such as DNA sequencing, For routine tracing experiments, a radioactive label is still often the preferred choice. In this case, the term radiolabeling is often used to describe the technique. One way of tracing DNA and RNA samples is to label the nucleic acid with a radioactive molecule, usually a deoxynucleoside triphosphate, DNTP, labeled with 3H or 32P so that the portions of each reaction may be counted in a scintillation counter to determine the amount of nucleic acid present. This is usually done by calculation, taking into account the amount of radioactivity present in the sample. A second application of radial labeling is in the production of highly radioactive nucleic acid molecules for use in hybridization experiments. Such molecules are known as radioactive probes and have a variety of uses. The difference between labeling for tracing purposes and labeling for probes is largely one of specific activity, that is, the measure of how radioactive the molecule is. For tracing purposes, a low specific activity will suffice, but for probes, a high specific activity is necessary. In probe preparation, the radioactive label is usually the high energy beta emitter 32P. Some common methods of labeling nucleic acid molecules are described next. End labeling. In the end labeling technique, the enzyme polynucleotide kinase is used to transfer the terminal phosphate group of ATP onto five prime hydroxyl termini of the nucleic acid molecules. If the ATP donor is radioactively labeled, this produces a labeled nucleic acid of relatively low specific activity as only the termini of each molecule become radioactive. So we've got a lovely little description of DNA. So we've got our dual helix and labeling DNA using a polynucleotide kinase, that's a PNK. DNA is a dephosphorylated using the photophosphatase, I'm sorry, DNA is dephosphorylated using phosphatase to generate a five prime OH group. The terminal phosphate of gamma 32P ATP, uh, in this it's represented as like a little circle that's popping onto the OH group that the PNK just broke apart is then transferred to the 5' terminus by the PNK. The reaction can also occur as an exchange reaction with the 5' phosphate termini. NIC translation. NIC translation relies on the ability of an enzyme DNA polymerase 1 to translate, or move along the DNA, a NIC created in the phosphodiester backbone of the DNA double helix. NICs may occur naturally or may be caused by a low concentration of the nuclease, Dnase-1, in the reaction mixture. DnA polymerase-1 catalyzes a strand replacement reaction that incorporates new DNTPs into the DNA chain. If one of the DNTPs supplied is radioactive, the result is a highly labeled DNA molecule. Hmm. There's a lovely little example on location 1032 of the digital version. But it is very uh, visually oriented, so I'm not going to even try to describe that. Labeling by Primer Extension Labeling by Primer Extension refers to a technique that uses random oligonucleotides, usually hexadeoxyribonucleotide molecules, sequences of six deoxyribonucleotides, to prime synthesis of a DNA strand by DNA polymerase. The DNA to be labeled is denatured by heating and the ol- oligonutri- oligonucleotide primers anneal to the single-stranded DNAs. The Klenow fragment of DNA polymerase can then synthesize a copy of the template primed from 3' hydroxyl group of the oligonucleotide. If a labeled DNTP is incorporated, DNA of a very high specific activity is
1: produced. So a quick note from the author here,
0: in most labeling reactions not all the radioactive DNTP is incorporated into the target sequence and non-incorporated isotope is usually removed before using the probe. So we have some primer extension examples in location 1048, again very visually oriented. In a radio labeling reaction, it's often desirable to separate the labeled DNA from the unincorporated nucleotides present in the reaction mixture. A simple way of doing this is to carry out a small-scale gel filtration step using a suitable medium. The whole process can be carried out in a Pasteur pipette with the labeled DNA coming through the column first, followed by the free nucleotides, I assume because of weight. Fractions can be collected and monitored for radioactivity and the data used to collect total activity of the DNA, specific activity, and percentage incorporation of the isotope. Nucleic acid hybridization. In addition to providing information about sequence complexity, nucleic acid hybridization can be used as an extremely sensitive detection method capable of picking out specific DNA sequences from complex mixtures. Usually, a single pure sequence is labeled with 32P and used as a probe. The probe is denatured before use so that the strands are free to base pair with their complements. The DNA to be probed is also denatured and usually fixed to a supporting membrane made from nitrocellulose or nylon. Hybridization is carried out in a sealed plastic bag or tube at 65 to 68 degrees C for several hours to allow the duplexes to form. The excess probe is then washed off and the degree of hybridization can be monitored by counting the sample in a scintillation spectrometer or by pre- preparing an autoradiograph where the sample is exposed to X ray film. Some of the applications of nucleic acid hybridization as a method for identifying clone DNA fragments will be discussed in
1: Chapter 8. Hmm. I've never used a scintillation spectrometer or an autoradiograph. I wonder how that works. Gel electrophoresis. The technique of
0: gel electrophoresis is vital to the genetic engineer, as it represents the main way by which nucleic acid fragments may be visualized directly. The method relies on the fact that nucleic acids are polyanionic at neutral pH. That is, they carry multiple negative charges because of the phosphate groups on the phosphodiester backbone of the nucleic acid strands, This means that the molecules will migrate towards the positive electrode when placed in an electric field. As the negative charges are distributed evenly along the DNA molecule, the charge-to-mass ratio is constant. Thus, mobility depends on fragment length. The technique is carried out using a gel matrix, which separates the nucleic acid molecules according to size. A typical nucleic acid electrophoresis setup is shown. So, we see an agarose gel. It's covered with a buffer, and our author tells us that this is what leads its name to be the submerged agarose gel electrophoresis or SAGE. Nucleic acid samples are placed in the gel towards the positive electrons. So, in this case, they're placed in the left hand column, and you can see them trying to migrate towards the platinum electrode on the positive side of the bed. The type of matrix used for electrophoresis has important consequences for the degree of separation achieved, which is dependent on the porosity of the matrix. Two gel types are commonly used, agarose and polyacrylamide. Agarose is extracted from seaweed and can be purchased as a dry powder that is melted in buffer at an appropriate concentration, normally in the range of 0.3-2% to to weight-to-volume. On cooling, the agarose sets to form the gel agarose gels are usually run in the apparatus shown in figure 3.5, which we just talked about, using SAGE. Polyacrylamide-based gel electrophoresis, or PAGE, is sometimes used to separate small nucleic acid molecules in applications such as DNA sequencing, as the pore size is smaller than that achieved with agarose. The useful separation ranges of agarose and polyacrylamide gels are shown in Table 3.1. Um, yep. I'm not going to read those because it's boring. Electrophoresis is carried out by placing the nucleic acid samples in the gel and applying a potential difference across it. This potential difference is maintained until a marker dye, usually bromophenol blue, is added, which is added to the sample prior to loading, reaches the end of the gel. The nucleic acids in the gel are usually visualized by staining with the intercalating dye, ethidium bromide, and examining under UV light. Nucleic acids show up as orange bands, which can be
1: photographed to provide a record. How cool is that? The data can be used to estimate the size of unknown fragments
0: by construction of a calibration curve using standards of known size, as migration is inversely proportional to the log 10 of the number of base pairs. This is particularly useful in the technique of restriction mapping. So I wonder in that Hill experiment, you know, when we were talking about the primordial soup, And they used the paper chromatography, um, based on size to identify amino acids. You know, I wonder if something like this wouldn't have
1: been more effective to identify actual nucleic acids. I don't know. Sure is pretty. Mmm. So we've got some
0: notes here. Uh, We show an example of an agarose gel stained with ethidium bromide under UV irradiation. and You can see the DNA samples showing up as orange smears or orange bands on a purple background. Each individual
1: band indicates a discrete fragment of DNA. So you see some smears, and then you see proper bands. And the author is telling us that the bands are
0: just fragments of DNA. And he tells us that this is a phage lambda. I wonder what that means. Phage lambda DNA cut with restriction enzyme HND3. The sizes of the fragments in KBP are indicated. The remaining lanes contain samples of DNA from an alga cut with various restriction enzymes. Because of the heterogeneous nature of these samples, the fragments merge into one another and show up as a smear on the gel. Samples that have migrated furthest are made up of the smallest fragments, and those that have remained near the top of the gel are larger. In addition to its use as in the analysis of nucleic acids, PAGE is used extensively for the analysis of proteins. The methodology is different from that used for nucleic acids, but the basic principles are similar. One common technique is SDS PAGE, in which the detergent SDS, which is sodium dodecyl sulfate, is used to denature multi subunit proteins and cover the protein molecules with negative charges. In this way, the inherent charge of the protein is massed, and the charge to mass ratio becomes constant. Thus, proteins can be separated according to their size in a similar way to DNA molecules. DNA sequencing. The ability to determine the sequence of bases in a DNA is a central part of modern molecular biology and provides what might be considered the ultimate structural information. Rapid methods for sequence analysis were developed in the late 1970s and the technique is now used in laboratories worldwide. In recent years, the basic techniques have been revolutionized by automation, which has improved the efficiency of sequencing to the point where genome sequencing is actually possible. Principles of DNA sequencing. After all, if you want to know what to futz with, you have to know what you're actually fussing with. By definition, the determination of the DNA sequence requires that the bases are identified in a sequential technique that enables the process of identification of each base in turn. There are three main requirements for this to be achieved. DNA fragments need to be prepared in a form suitable for sequencing. The technique used must achieve the aim of presenting each base in turn in a form suitable for identification. The detection method must permit rapid and accurate identification of the bases. Generation and preparation of DNA fragments is fairly simple on a purely technical level. The fragments are often clone sequences that are presented for sequencing in a suitable vector. I think that's probably E. coli, right? With careful attention to detail, this can be achieved quite easily. Much more difficult is the informatic problem of knowing where the fragment is within the genome. There are basically two approaches to solving this problem, which will be described a little later on. The sequencing protocol is essentially a technical procedure rather than an experimental one. There are several variants of the basic procedure, but the most widely used techniques are based on the enzymatic method. Whatever the method, the desired result is to generate a set of overlapping fragments that terminate at different bases and differ in length by one nucleotide. This is known as a set of nested fragments. Assuming that the technique has generated a set of nested fragments, the detection step is the final stage of the sequencing procedure. This usually involves separation of the fragments on a polyacrylamide gel. Slab gels, in which fragments are radioactively labeled, generate generate an autoradiograph. Automated sequencing procedures tend to use fluorescent labels and a continuous electrophoresis to separate the fragments, which are identified as they pass a detector. Remarkable. There are two main methods for sequencing DNA. One method, developed by Alan Maxim and Walter Gilbert, chemicals are used to cleave the DNA at certain positions, generating a set of fragments that differ by one nucleotide. The same result is achieved in a different way in a second method developed by Fred Sanger and Alan Coulson, which involves enzymatic synthesis of DNA strands that terminate in a modified nucleotide. Analysis of fragments is similar for both methods and involves gel electrophoresis and audioradiography, assuming that the radioactive label has been used. The enzymatic method and variants of the basic technique has now almost completely replaced the chemical method as the technique of choice, although there are some situations where chemical sequencing can provide useful data to confirm information generated by the enzymatic method.
1: As already mentioned,
0: fluorographic detection methods can be used in place of radioactive isotopes. This is particularly important in DNA sequencing as it speeds up the process and enables the technique to be automated. We'll look at this in more detail in Chapter 10, when we consider genome sequencing. The difficulty of preparing a fragment for sequencing is largely dependent on the scale of the sequencing project. If the aim is to sequence a part of the gene that has already been isolated and identified, the process is relatively straightforward and usually requires that the fragment is of a suitable length and in a suitable form for the sequencing procedure in use. If, however, the aim is to sequence a much larger piece of DNA, such as an entire chromosome, the problem is much greater. In this case, the sequencing strategy is important, and there are two approaches to this. The first is an ordered sequencing strategy, often called the clone-by-clone or clone contig method. The fragments are tracked as part of the strategy, and their relative order is noted as the project progresses. The sequence is put together by reference to the order of the fragments. The second approach is the so-called shotgun sequencing method, where the fragments are generated and processed at random. Assembly of the sequence is then carried out by searching for sequence overlaps using a computer. Two strategies are shown in Figure 3.7. Ooh,
1: yeah, I'm not gonna be able to describe that. Yeah, that's location 1160. So the key to that just seems to be
0: looking for overlaps. So you have chromosomes, you basically find where each bit of each band touches another one, and those similar
1: processes are your are your nucleotides, your names. Mm, the ordered approach
0: is more difficult at the stage of cloning and sequencing, but assembling the sequence is a little simpler than in the shotgun method. Maxim Gilbert Chemical Sequencing A defined fragment of DNA is required as the starting material. This need not be cloned in a plasmid vector, so, the technique is applicable to any DNA fragment. The DNA is radiolabeled with 32p at the five prime ends of each strand, and the strands are denatured, separated, and purified to give a population of labeled strands for the sequencing reaction. The next step is a chemical modification of the bases in the DNA strand. This is done in a series of four or five reactions with different specificities, and the reaction conditions are chosen so that on average, only one modification will be introduced into each copy of the DNA molecule. The modified bases are then removed from their sugar groups, and the strands cleaved at these positions using the chemical, pyperididine. The theory is that given the large number of molecules and the different reactions,
1: this process will produce a set of nested fragments. Hmm. Oh, and
0: we're looking for a label at the 5' prime termini, always, because that's the beginning, remember, 5 to 3. Sanger-Coulson Dideoxy or Enzymatic Sequencing Although the end result is similar to that attained by the chemical method, the Sanger-Coulson procedure is totally different from that of Maxim and Gilbert. In this case, a copy of the DNA to be sequenced is made by the Clenow fragment of DNA polymerase. The template for this reaction is single-stranded DNA and a primer must be used to provide the 3' terminus for DNA polymerase to begin synthesizing the copy. The production of nested fragments is achieved by the incorporation of a modified dNTP in each reaction. These dNTPs lack hydroxyl groups at the 3' position of deoxyribose, which is necessary for chain elongation to proceed. Such modified dNTPs are known as dideoxynucleoside triphosphates, or dDNTPs. The four dDNTPs, A, G, T, and C forms, are included in a series of four reactions, each of which contains the four normal dNTPs. The concentration of the dideoxy form is such that it will be incorporated into the growing DNA chain infrequently. Each reaction, therefore, produces a series of fragments terminating at a specific nucleotide, and the four reactions together provide a set of nested fragments. The DNA chain is labeled by including a radioactive DNTP in the reaction mixture. This is usually an alpha 35s DATP, which enables more sequence to be read from a single gel than the 32p-labeled dNTPs that were used previously. The generation of fragments for dideoxy sequencing is more complicated than for chemical sequencing, and usually involves subcloning into different vectors. Many plasmid vectors are now available, and some types can be used directly for DNA sequencing experiments. Another method is to clone the DNA into a vector, such as a bacteriophage M13, which produces single-stranded DNA during infection. This provides a suitable substrate for the
1: sequencing reactions. So just as a quick note, um, I had so much trouble with this portion
0: on the MCAT, so this is very good for anyone studying MCAT. They do a reading of a DNA sequence and an autoradiograph of of sequencing gel
1: with a tracing of the auto-radiograph. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely I definitely bomb this,
0: because they don't give you the audio-radiograph tracing, they only give you the electrophoresis with the bands, and then they ask you to identify the genetic sequences associated with that, and I did not do great. (laughs) Yeah, like, so this was really hard for me.
1: Woof. Anyway,
0: you read it from the bottom of the gel, right, so when I give it to you it's going to be in this long linear pattern. So you go from the bottom and you read from the top, and each fragment is one nucleotide longer than the preceding ones. So if they give you the bottom one as a T, then you know that the next one is going to be a G, and then a C and then an A, like, so you have to just skip one to the next. This one, I did not do well on this. (laughs) Woof. Anyway, electrophoresis and reading of sequences. Separation of the DNA fragments created in the sequencing reactions is achieved by PAGE. For the standard lab procedure, small-scale, non-automated, a single gel system is used. The gels usually contain 6-20% to 20% polyacrylamide and 7 mol urea, which acts as the denaturant to reduce the effects of DNA secondary structure. This is important because fragments that differ in length by only one base are being separated. The gels are very thin and are run at high power settings, which causes them to heat up to 60 or 70 degrees Celsius. This also helps to maintain denaturing conditions. Sometimes two lots of samples are loaded onto the same gel at different times to
1: maximize
0: the amount of sequence information obtained. After the gel has been run, it's removed from the apparatus and may be dried onto a paper sheet to facilitate handling. It's then exposed to x-ray film. The emissions from the radioactive label sensitize the silver grains, which turn black when the film is developed and fixed. The result is known as an autoradiograph. Reading the autoradiograph is straightforward the sequence is read from the smallest fragment upwards. Using this method, sequences of up to several hundred bases may be read from single gels. The sequence data are then compiled and studied using a computer, which can perform analyses such as translation into amino acid sequences and identification of restriction sites, regions of sequence homology, and other structural motifs such as promoters and control regions. I think for the MCAT, the only ones that were really important were the stop codons that they expected you to know from memory. Um, The rest of them I don't really recall. Automation of DNA sequencing. One of the major advances in technology that enabled sequencing to move from single-gel lab-based systems to large-scale production line sequencing was the automation of many parts of the process. Whereas a good lab scientist or technician could sequence maybe a few hundred bases per day, this was not gonna solve the problem of determining genome sequences as opposed to gene sequences. Improving the technology by orders of magnitude was required. This was achieved by improvements in sample preparations and handling, with robotic processing enabling high-volume throughput. In a similar way, the automation of sequencing reactions and linear continuous capillary electrophoresis techniques enabled scale-up of the sequence determination stage of the process. In addition to challenges of sequence determination, a parallel challenge lay in the need to develop sufficient computing power to deal with the vast amounts of data generated by the newly improved technologies employed in genome sequencing. In fact, it could be argued that the most critical part of the whole process is the data analysis side of things. Without the ability to interrogate sequence data, the sequence remains essentially silent. These aspects will be dealt more in detail as we look at Bioinformatics in Chapter 9 and Genome Sequencing in Chapter 10. Mm. Okay, so we have a lovely little concept map here talking about nucleic acids may be analyzed either as DNA or RNA molecules, and they can be isolated from cells, they may be arranged as complementary strands and exploited as nucleic acid hybridization. The DNA or RNA may be handled in solution, but may be precipitated using ethanol or isopropanol. DNA or RNA can be separated by electrophoresis on the basis of fragment length. DNA and RNA can be sequenced, DNA, by two methods, the chemical Maxim-Gilbert method or the enzymatic sanger coulson method, which generate nested fragments, which then can be separated according to fragment length. DNA or RNA can be radio labeled by end labeling or by strand labeling through either the NIC translation or the primer extension method.
1: So quite a few options there. And there are no questions for this chapter, uh, so
0: we will we will not worry about it. Um, but the reason I chose this particular book one is because it was the cheapest. But two, um, we want to do some genetic engineering for our phytoremediation, right? So, if we're going to be doing a pilot study to capture local adaptations in situ, we're going to have to use some of these laboratory techniques to test for those um, genetic abnormalities or those genetic adaptations that would facilitate plant growth under adverse conditions or help facilitate nutrient uptake, or, or any of those things. So that is, that is why we're focusing on the methods here, because we're going to have to recommend some lab techniques to figure out how to handle local environmental conditions, say in a desert, when you're dealing with something very recalcitrant like metals, right? We're going to have to think about how we can help those plants do better. Um, and also, I really like writing about genetic engineering, so I figure I should probably have some a proper basis in it, if I continue to insist on writing science fiction that involves genetic techniques I don't understand. So, two for one deal on that one.